At the beginning of last summer, Julie and I traveled down to Camp Akita, where we had been invited by Scott Nickel to do a little bit of training with our counseling staff. It was just before the, the young people would arrive for any of their weeks of, of camp. We were to go down there and talk a little bit about the theology of First Community Church and our understanding of, of the nature of God. We had a marvelous time. The questions and comments were, were just, they really showed a depth of thought and, and insight. They're, these young people that are leading our, our children up there throughout the summer are really some of the brightest and the best that I've ever encountered. And we actually got into pretty heavy stuff. Somebody even said in the middle of my presentation, now wait a second, why is it that when I do everything I'm supposed to do and live my life the way I'm supposed to live, sometimes still bad things happen? I don't get it. And I said, I don't either. <laughs> It's a really good conversation. Enjoyed it immensely. Well, later in the summer, I decided I wanted to go back down and, and not only check on the counseling staff, but see Akita up close and in, and in person to experience what a week of camp is like. I went down and, and met a bunch of the kids for lunch and then spent the afternoon watching them, uh, the, all the campers have a great time. In fact, they tried really hard to get me to go down the soap slide. Those of you who've been there, you know about the soap slide. I suddenly d developed a serious back problem uh, in that moment. <laughs> Couldn't quite do it. Well, later on in the day, though, I asked all the counselors if they could to meet with me in the lodge in one of the meeting places there. I wanted to check in on them to see how their summer was going, what they'd experienced, what they'd learned, if their faith had been enriched, and th those sorts of questions. So we gathered there, and everybody just piled in. There was a table set up with some of the most disgusting food you've ever seen. And not, not the camp food. This is food they brought in, like gummy bears and worms and Doritos. And I, they were eating Doritos with gummy bears in between the Doritos. It was strange. But the conversation was great. I asked them, simply, how's it going? And I thought they'd first would say, oh, it's, it's going great. I can't wait, though, to get back and sleep in my own bed, maybe get a couple of days off, or, boy, I'm really tired. No, they, they went right to the serious stuff. This place is amazing, one of them said. Another said, this is my first summer as a counselor. My whole life, my whole life has been opened up in a way I never imagined it could be. Another one said, my faith, my, my sense of God's presence has just been overwhelmingly real was that kind of a conversation right away. And then one young person said, and there were tears in her eyes, this is my family. I trust every one of these persons in this room. I trust them with my life. And I give them my life. This is my family. This is, this is the place where I've discovered what love means. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. It was truly it was truly a dwelling place, a sacred space, a spot that was filled with, dare we even say, the glory of God. The old Celtics described it as, a, as the thin place, the place where, where heaven and earth seem to meld together. and It's almost in a mystical way. You just feel as though something is happening. You can't even describe it. It was, it, was a, it was a beautiful opportunity for me to see exactly what it is that Camp Akita can do, not only for our campers who go there, but for the young adults who staff it. Akita had truly become for them, as you heard Linda read a few moments ago, the dwelling place, a place where they found hope and love, grace and forgiveness, a place where they found the Spirit of God.
Do you have a place like that? Is there somewhere you can go where you know you'll be accepted as you are? At your worst, still be loved? At your best, be celebrated? Is there somewhere? Is it your home? Is it, is it a place at school or work somewhere in nature? Is there, is there a place where you can go and discover that you're in the presence of God? Well, as I said a few moments ago, we read, we read about this place. Jesus gathers with his best friends, and he tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. There's that phrase. God, the one who created all, has many places to dwell, many dwelling places. You, you've no doubt heard this text before. It's one of my favorites. It's a beautiful one. Often read most of the time in the church, it seems, at funerals and memorial services, and appropriately so. It's a sweet way to remind people that, that when they gather to celebrate the life of one who's now been lost, that God will receive them and love them, that there is room within God's heavenly realm for all of us. But really, the text means more than that. Although part of the reason why we tend to assign that to funerals is due to a, a mistranslation of the word for dwelling place. In the old King James Bible, it used to say mansions. Have some of you read the King James? You remember that translation? In my father's house, there are many mansions. And so the promise was like, oh, when we die, you'll get a mansion or you'll get a house or you'll at least get a really nice, elegant room of, of some kind. In fact, one time I was making a visit to see a, an older member of the church that I was serving uh, previously before coming here. And, she was about four or five days from death. She knew death was imminent, asked me to come by and say a prayer with her. And, and as we're praying, she stopped and said, can you, can you do something, can you quote something from Scripture? I just want to hear something from the Bible. And so I quoted this text to her, only I did it in the King James, thinking that she'd be most familiar with the King James. And I said, you know, in, in, in God's house, there are many mansions. And her face got even more troubled. And she asked, mansions? Who's going to clean? <laughs> So we get a little confused about the meaning of this text and what, what it is that, that Jesus wants us to understand. See, when Jesus spoke them 2,000 years ago, like those kids at Akita, he was with his best friends. He was with the ones that he knew, or at least he wanted to believe, he could trust. They'd been through all sorts of things, and now it's the night before the crucifixion. It's the darkest of nights. It's the most frightening night. It's a time when no one knows for sure what will happen the next day. And Jesus somehow can, can read the room and read the feelings that they're experiencing. And he says to them, do not let, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. There are many dwelling places. There are many places where you can find the very presence of God. You see, this, this promise isn't just about heaven. It's that too. But what is it ultimately saying is that there is nowhere in this one world that we share, in this one life that we have, or the life to that is to come where we can go, there's nowhere we can go and escape the presence of God. There, in other words, there is no God-forsaken place anywhere on earth. Even if that God-forsaken place you think is in your heart or your soul because you've been broken by grief or sorrow or anger or fear or mistrust, even there, even there, Jesus promises there is a place a dwelling place for the very Spirit, the Spirit of God that we worship, the Spirit of God that loves us and receives us as we are. That dwelling place in you is any place where you experience 
something of the sacred, of, of the holy. It's surprising where you might find these places. Several years ago, when I was a senior minister at Sandy Springs Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, I was invited by folks in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in that state to lead a week of high school camp at their Camp Christian. Camp Christian was located in southern Georgia, just below what they lovingly called the Nat, the Nat line, G-N-A-T. You know, Nat's little bugs that buzz. This was not a good sign about this camp, by the way. As I drove into the, I recruited a number of college-age kids to be counselors for the week. It was going to be a group of ninth graders, about 100 ninth graders from all over the state of Georgia. Put together a nice-looking team, good, good collection of young college-age, young adults who would work with me, some of them who'd actually been to that camp before, but I'd never been, so as I was driving into the campground for the very first time, I was somewhat shocked. It was the most dilapidated space you've ever seen that was still open. Parked my car, sort of walked around shaking my head, going, I cannot, what are we going to, this is, oh. That's an exact quote. <laughs> I saw there was a pool, so I walked over to the pool and looked in, and just as I looked in, a frog jumped up on my foot. The pool was half empty, it was filled with this green, blackish, greenish, just horrid looking water, it smelled terrible, the dining hall was a place I wouldn't, I wouldn't serve my worst enemy food, it was just, I just couldn't believe it. Well, later. This was before the kids were going to arrive. The kids were coming the next day. But all my staff, the young adults, the college kids, they came not long after I did. And we did our, our team building activities and got into planning the week and all, all that sort of thing. In the, middle, in the middle of the first team building activity, though, I just blurted out, I can't believe this place. This is a dump. This is the worst camp I've ever seen. It smells. There's frogs in the pool. The dining hall is gross. What, what, I don't understand. I looked up and Julie, not my Julie, a different Julie, she's crying. I mean, big tears just rolling down her face. I was smart enough to stop and say, are you okay? She said, no. There was anger in her voice. I am not okay. I've been coming here since the third grade. This is the place where I discovered God loves me. This is the place where I discovered that I matter, that people know my name. This for me is a sacred holy place. And don't you ever talk about it like that again. Do you understand? She didn't have a mic, but she could have dropped it if she had. Her words were so clear. I was 37 and arrogant and thought I knew everything, and yet I knew nothing in that moment. It was a sacred and holy place to her because it was there she discovered the presence of God. Jesus asks his disciples to believe this is true, to know that anywhere, sometimes in the most surprising way, God is more than willing and ready to embrace us, hold us, welcome us, breathe quiet trust into our very lungs. Jesus says to his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. You know, that word belief needs a little bit of, a little bit of understanding. In, in the United States of America especially, the church in the United States, we've turned the idea of belief into the intellectual agreement of a certain list of things. We've done this especially in the church around the nature of God, around who Jesus Christ is, about how the church is to function. Then we say to people, if you believe this, we don't in this church, but the churches in general in the United States, if you believe this and believe this and believe this, fine, you get to go to heaven. If you don't believe these things, you will suffer forever and torment and burn. Now that's complete nonsense. Sense, but I'm surprised at how much that idea, even if we don't believe it, still kind of permeates our thinking. I hear it in the pews, I hear it in the hallways, in my office. 
conversations around and about the city and the community, that somehow we are, are, are required to believe these certain things, and if we don't, we're not really being faithful. I was in an airport not too long ago, had my little pocket Bible out that I use when I travel, had my, my laptop open, I was working on some sermon notes in the, in the airport waiting for my plane. Somebody sat down next to me, saw the Bible and said, are you a pastor? I said, yes. <clears throat> sort of reluctantly, <clears throat> and he said, I, I don't believe in God. I said, fine, I, I understand that. And he said, can you say some more to me about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I said, you know, that word belief really means to give one's heart to. It was Marcus Borg who first taught me that. Marcus Borg has been in this pulpit. Marcus Borg is the one who many years ago, about 20 years ago or so, said we're really confused about this idea. We think belief is a list of things you have to write your name at the end. And so, yes, I agree. Actually, belief is to give one's heart away. When Jesus asks us to believe, I said to my friend in the airport, what he's asking us to do is to believe and trust in his way of life. The Gospel of John, for example, someone has said, is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a, an infant to wade. At some points, it seems very hard and philosophical and, and very difficult to, to understand and comprehend. But in other ways, when, when we hear Jesus say, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, it's that clear and it's that simple. I smiled at my friend, the atheist, and I said, here's the deal. Love your wife. We found out about each other. I said, love your wife, love your kids, love your neighbors. You'll be fine. No worries. He smiled and said, I could almost go to your church. <laughs> You see, but most of us, though, don't we find ourselves kind of perched in that same place? Don't we often find ourselves in that place between belief and unbelief, faith and doubt? One of my favorite texts is in Mark 9. It's where a man brings his son to Jesus and says, would you, Lord, would you heal him, please? He's in dire straits. And Jesus says, if you'll only believe, even the impossible can happen. And the man says, do you remember what he says? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I suspect most of us live on that place. One of those young people at camp said to me when I was meeting with them last summer, one of the counselors, I'm a little afraid to, to mention this to you, Glenn, he said, but my faith has actually lessened since I've come here. Because of the questions we ask, because of the conversations that we have, I've actually begun to doubt more and more and more. And he kind of, kind of leaned back and said, I, I hope I'm not going to be in trouble for telling you that. And I said, of course not. There's more faith in honest doubt than in all the creeds combined. God doesn't expect you to come with some fake faith or some silly notion of what you're supposed to think. God wants you to come as you are. To do anything less is intellectually dangerous and psychologically frightening. Bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your worries, and lay them before the one who invites us to believe, to give our hearts away. What Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples then is he's asking them to trust in him and all that he has taught them. He wants them to be able to embrace this word, to understand this, this idea that in, in giving our hearts away to each other in an act of trust, We'll find the strength and the courage we need to face whatever happens in this chaotic world in which we live. 
I mean, think about how we get stuck with this. Sometimes we think we have to intellectually explain everything, have to describe it and, and, and footnote it and get it all worked out in a very thick term paper or something else. Nothing wrong with that. It's important work, of course. I've done all that work myself. But at some point, we have to be clear about what it is we're finally doing at the end of the day. When my wife, Julie, and I, before we were married, stood on the chancel much like this at the First Christian Church in San Francisco, there was a part of me that wanted to say, today we're getting married because it has been proven sociologically and throughout history that the marriage contract is an essential way to form community and to enlarge the human race and to continue to move forward in, in an appropriate way. There was part of me that wanted to say that. I didn't. What did we say? For better, for worse. In richer, in poorer. In sickness, in health. What was that? A promise. A promise that we could trust in each other. A promise that when we are at our worst, when we've stumbled and fallen, the other will be there to lift the one up. When we are at our best and are celebrating some th something amazing, you'll celebrate with me. A promise, simple and clear, given in love. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. In other words, Check anxiety at the door. No matter what troubles are facing us, no matter how life is being spun around and about us, anxiety will do nothing to increase it or improve it. The promise is that no matter what we're facing, whether highs or lows or somewhere in between, God's Spirit will be there with us, even in our questions and, and our doubts. A better title for this sermon today rather than No More Troubles might have been No More Anxiety. You see, because anxiety actually makes our life more difficult. I read Max Lucado this week, who's a good pastor, did a little bit of research on this. He found a study from World War II that soldiers who were ground soldiers, if they spent 60 days in or around battle, by the end of that 60 days, they were emotionally dead. This was a dangerous place for them to, to, be, to be. The same study found that fighter pilots, who were, frankly, a much more dangerous setting than the ground soldiers, actually had an unbelievably positive view of what they were doing. They felt called to their work. 93% of them, according to this study, felt happy that they could be a fighter pilot. And here's what's strange about this. The, basic, the survival rate of fighter pilots in World War II was about 50%, basically the flip of a coin. The, the ground soldiers, the ones dealing with, with uh, everyday fighting, had a much higher uh, rate of survival, much, much, much higher, and yet those pilots felt much more secure why? According to the study, because they could control that plane. Because they'd been trained and taught and given instructions on how to deal with everything that might happen in that plane. They could move it up or down. They could move it left or right. They were in charge and in control. And no matter how chaotic and messy it got around them, they were still seeing themselves as ones who could handle it because of their training. Imagine it like this. That Southwest pilot last week, you heard the story, right, about the Southwest plane with the, with the engine that exploded? Imagine if she would have reacted to this anxious situation the way I normally do when something bad happens to me. This isn't fair. I don't like this. I don't know why God's picking on me. I don't want to go to Philadelphia. I want to go to Texas. This is a, I mean, it would have been a terrible disaster. Instead, what did she do? Did you hear the recordings of her voice? Uh, hello, Tower. I'm missing some parts from my plane. There's a hole in the plane. 
Things are difficult. I need a runway. And even at the end of the sign-off, what did she say? Good day. I, whatever plane I fly on next, I want her as my pilot. You see, that's the promise. That's the promise that Jesus is giving to his disciples and to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And it's a promise not just given to us individually. It's given to us as a church. Can we trust in each other? Are we ready for the new era that God is setting before us? We've got a new building coming. There's some new work been done here we're going to dedicate later today. All of these are signs and symbols of the way the Spirit is physically working among us. But what about our hearts and minds? Are we ready not only to trust in God and the teachings of Jesus, but in the person you're sitting next to in the pew? Are we ready? First Community Church, do not let your hearts be troubled.